Good to be uh, awake today, good to be alive, good to know that Christ loves us. Please uh, find uh, Philippians chapter 3 in your uh, Bibles, and uh, we'll be reading the entire passage, also chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, normally a passage like this, um, I would take uh, at least three weeks to do this, um, maybe four, because I think there's one verse in it that really requires almost that, and uh, it's a frightening thing to get an entire chapter. Um, don't you think so, John? It does. And uh, I don't know what, did you choose that for me personally? It was Don Carson that chose it. He denied it yesterday. Oh my, oh my, the things we learned from Don, right? Um, he told me that when they do the large gospel coalitions in the U.S., he gives these big hunks of scripture uh, and John Piper complains bitterly. And uh, I said, that's wonderful. I'm in John Piper's camp. I too complain uh, bitterly. But it is a marvelous text, and there is something to reading the entire text. Uh, it really is enriching, and to hear the entire sweep of Paul's thoughts and look to see where that makes sense in our own lives. So uh, with our Bibles open, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, verse 1. Here now, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That's for the reading of God's word. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, these are the words that come to us um, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit attending to the writing of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we recognize that all Scripture is given for also for us, for our instruction. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us a keen interest in these things. Heavenly Father, I pray, send your Holy Spirit to give us an urgency to know this, for this word is life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's interesting to me that I was given chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1, and I was also given chapter 3, and I, and I found myself actually working on both of these at the same time, and found myself naturally doing a contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 3, and what's immediately noticeable as you look at those two chapters is that in chapter 1, Paul speaks of his competitors, and you will remember that his competitors are those who preach the gospel with false motives, and to them he gives this very gracious word saying, nevertheless, as long as Christ is preached and simply is content to leave it at that thing. In other words, he's saying, even if it does me personal harm, I am so delighted that the gospel is going forward. And that's very uh, wonderful. And yet when we come to chapter 3, the tenor of the thing changes so dramatically. Because if you look in chapter 3, you can see um, Paul's competitors now are Judaizers, and instead of applying grace, the same kind of language in chapter 1, he now uh, heaps out a vitriolic condemnation, almost, almost a hate-filled language to these men that he speaks with now, and I find that fascinating. He calls his competitors here dogs, he calls them evildoers, he calls them mutilators of the flesh, referring to their circumcision act, and uh, people also who sell false circumcision, and men who give themselves what can only be described as manure, or I might say, to put it in contemporary language, crap theology. That's how he describes now whom he's talking about. And that's really startling. And so before we go on, I think what we need to do is at least work at that application here. Um, I, I know that last night when David spoke, and if you were here, it really was a wonderful time. It just sensed that God's Spirit was here. But David had used one line in, uh, in his uh, talk, and that was that he used the line of first order of theology or something of that nature, a first order truth. I think that's what he had said. And, uh, you know, that kind of language gets used in a number of different contexts. Some of you have heard Mark Driscoll use the language of closed-fisted items, things that we fight for and would never give up on, and those things that are open-handed items, that is, those things that we are gracious to others over. I've always thought that the, the simply the closed-fisted and the open-handed is not sufficient to talk about the full range of uh, theological propositions that we make. I think at the very least there's another hand that's required, uh, maybe two more, but at the very least I think we can say that there are those things that we would say would be in a guarded hand. Um, I would say that the things that we would fight for, um, that we would never give on, in other words, those are the things that we would not condescend to call someone a brother in Christ. We might say of that order of truth would be things like the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Um, but I would say that in my estimation, the things that would be in the guarded hand would be things like 
Well, uh, you heard Don Carson speak about the whole complementarian and egalitarian debate. From my vantage point, that does not actually fit in the closed hand, but in the guarded hand. And what I mean by that is there are some truths in which we recognize that there are those who hold a very different, what we would say, an unbiblical perspective. Uh, and so I would argue that is, in fact, the case of those who hold an egalitarian proposition of the relationship of men and women. Um, I think that's a hugely problematic proposition for a number of reasons. Uh, theologically, because it introduces us to a hermeneutic that, in fact, if it is followed to its logical conclusion, that if that same hermeneutic that leads you to a feminist conclusion of Scripture is applied to other biblical doctrines, I mean, you and I should know that it will lead us basically to disassembling our entire Bible. Um, at the same time, I would also say that the egalitarian perspective philosophically is problematic. I mean, if the only difference between men and women is a matter of our plumbing, then indeed what's eventually we are going to move philosophically ultimately to an acceptance of homosexuality. I cannot see how you can untie those issues. I do know, however, that there are those who hold to an egalitarian perspective who never go there. But I would put that in a guarded hand. That is, if you follow the natural progression of thought, if you follow the trajectory to its ultimate conclusion, it will lead you to, I think, a, a very Christ-denying proposition. But I know a number of people who never go there. So we would always say of individuals who disagree with us on issues like that, at least that's where I stand, I would say I strongly disagree, and I'm very concerned about where this may go. I recognize some are not going there, and I would always acknowledge that they are my full brothers and sisters in Christ, even though this is a significant issue, but I would argue it's not a closed-handed issue. There are other issues that are in the open hand, and when I say an open-handed issue, I mean some of us will place different things in the open-handed issue. I mean, for some of us, an open-handed issue might be the issue of baptism, Interesting thing to say for myself coming from what would be an Anabaptist church that has the Baptistic mindset very central. And I do know that we have brothers and sisters here who don't agree on that. And when I say open-handed, I don't mean we can leave it, take it, or leave it. I mean that we would actually believe that there are some very key biblical reasons to argue for that, and we might even argue for that in the context of a local church and say we cannot give on that issue here, notwithstanding when there are those within the wider body of Christ hold an open-handed issue. We would say to them, we're not concerned that it will lead to you into a trajectory into vastly biblical denying propositions. We actually say we don't think that's going to happen. So I think intuitively, all of us do that. And the reason I mention this at the outset of this passage is because Paul begins with this vitriolic language. And it's very important for us to know where to apply such language and where not to. I always find it interesting to read Luther because you remember Luther called Mohammed the firstborn of the devil. That sounds really significant, but he also called the Pope the firstborn of the devil. And then the list of the firstborns of the devil started to grow, and I wondered, how many firstborns does the devil actually have? Now, it is interesting to me that it is important for us to temper our language around things 
about which we disagree. However, having said that, reading this text, I would say that there are some issues in which it's important for us not to temper our language. In other words, there are issues in which we must make ourselves so clear that we want to say that on this issue, we're going to fight this thing all the way to the finish line. There will be a winner and a loser on this one, and we will not draw back. We will not say, well, nevertheless, we do have some disagreements, but there are other things that we agree on. There are some issues that are so strong and so overwhelming that we simply give no quarter and we push the matter through to its conclusion. And I must conclude when I read chapter 3, that's the order of truth that we're talking about. Now, when we've done that, I think uh, we, we should remember also that we live in this interesting day. I mean, Don spoke about this in, in which in the evangelical movement, we, we tend to water things down. And I, I'm going to tell you a few secrets uh, in the denomination that I'm a part of. Uh, the denomination that I'm a part of, um, you know, it's an interesting denomination because over time, it has become what I call like a big top tent. You remember when circuses used to come to town? Well, if you're my age, you remember. Uh, circuses came to town, they set up a big tent. And it was a three-ring circus. And uh, so what you would have in a three-ring circus is you would have numerous competing circus acts all occurring at the same time. So you sit in this circle around these three circles, and you can decide which one fascinates you and which one you like to do. You can flip back and forth between them, but typically a person would get fascinated with one act and just be zoned in on that. And in some ways, many denominations have become like that. We have allowed for competing theologies to now all coexist together under a big top ten. Uh, what now binds us together is a common history where we have come from, um, but we've also kind of learned how to get along. Uh, sometimes we will even say, uh, you know, let's be missional together, even while we have not yet defined what we actually will live and die for. So those are the kind of things that I think are before us. I also know that in the wider Canadian scene, the Canadian Evangelical Fellowship, um, I think is, uh, tries to set uh, out a very broad-based, uh, very wide-ranging uh, theology for evangelicals in Canada. And I know the reason for that. I think that the primary reason for that is that evangelicals as a whole, how many of us ever there are in Canada, would have enough of a voice to speak to issues that concern us in Ottawa, so the attempt is made to define us as broadly as we can. And the real issue for us, uh, especially as I'm now speaking as a coalition member, the Gospel Coalition, is to begin to acknowledge what belongs in which hand, what in fact takes an individual outside the camp. So uh, that's the kind of thing that I, I think that we are after when we look at this text. I, I think I needed to simply say that before we even begin. Also, I do know that there is something like that um, in, in uh, the, the New Testament itself. I mean, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, the issue in 1 Corinthians 8, as you know, is what to do with meat sacrificed to idols. And you will know that on that issue, Paul, I would argue, is making that an open-handed issue. He is allowing for the conscience of the individual worshiper to make some decisions. However, he does place some strictures around that. And so it does require, I think, some measure of uh, you know, 
theological savvy to come at that. So when we think about the issues that divide us, things like baptism, I've mentioned the issue of egalitarianism, uh, feminism, uh, our eschatology. I am in a denomination that is largely Arminian, and uh, you ask me exactly how does that work. If you're Reformed in a uh, denomination largely Arminian, that's an interesting proposition. I won't discuss that today. Uh, then I mentioned also what is penal substitution. All of these things, I think, for every one of us as we discuss that, we ask exactly where does that fit for me? Is this the kind of thing that I make the statements that Paul speaks about or not? Now, I think what we need to do is not only decide what goes in which category. Whether, you know, to use David's language, a first order, a second order, a third order of truth, we need to do more than that. We need to ask ourselves, why are we putting things into a given category? This can't be a matter of our prejudices. We must take time in Scripture itself to begin to identify those things which Paul will bring those kind of invectives forward and ask ourselves, why indeed should this be in the closed fist? In other words, I will never give on this. I will fight. I will die for this. I will lose my ministry for this. David spoke about losing his house for this. I mean, obviously, the man has said, if I did not fight for this order of truth, all of those persecutions would not have come upon him. But he did. He thought those things are what he must fight for. So I need to say to you today, if you put nothing in the closed fist, do not worry, you will not suffer for the gospel. Congratulations. But on the other hand, I want to say that if indeed you begin to identify those things to fight and die for, the hill in which you will die, the which you will take a stand, you will, you will suffer for that. Well, okay, let's... Um, what I'm going to do with chapter 3 is I'm going to put it into five sections, and I'm going to call those five sections five tests for determining bad versus good theology. In short, what I think what Paul actually gives us is five reasons why he so thoroughly denounces the Judaizers. And before we begin, again, there's, a couple, there's another thing I need to do before we dive right in, and that is to say we need to define who the Judaizers actually were. They were quite likely converted Pharisees. Uh, they probably believed, no, not probably, they, they would have believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and there is no reason to suppose that they might have at least given lip service to the gospel, that they would have had some kind of a theology of atonement that Christ died for our sins. And given that, However, they sought to supplement the gospel, as you know, requiring the basics of the Jewish law to be imposed upon the Gentiles, especially when it comes to circumcision and the adherence of Jewish dietary restrictions. Probably those two things are the big issues, circumcision and uh, dietary restrictions. And you might look at that and at the outset say, well, you know, maybe Paul is making a bigger deal than he should have. If these people would say, I believe that Christ died for our sins, but I also believe the Gentiles should be circumcised, why not just form different denominations? Because that's what we do, right? Evangelicals do that. I mean, we do know that even in this group, you know, you've got Presbyterian Anglican types, they want to baptize everybody, and then you've got Baptist Mennonite types, we only want to baptize some, and then you've got people like Salvation Army, they don't want to baptize anybody. And that's why we have denominations, right? That's what we do, and yet Paul will allow for none of that. So what we want to do is ask ourselves why Paul thinks that adding 
circumcision and dietary restrictions is such an affront to the gospel that if you hold this, you will actually close the door to gospel presentation and you will keep multitudes from entering and finding Christ. That's what he thinks. You're going to say, why? What's the big deal? Well, you know that Acts chapter 15 is that watershed moment. And in Acts 15, of course, the church meets together and they discuss whether or not they should require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And I always think it's a good thing that they actually agreed that the Gentiles would not be circumcised because evangelistic potential is tied to that. I mean, imagine a Billy Graham crusade. And as the choir sings, just as I am, he announces, and men, circumcisers are standing by. Come, even right now. In fact, they're in three groups. There is the actual circumciser himself. Don't worry. Three fast cuts will do it. One, two, three. It'll be done. Then we have disinfectant and somebody bandaging, and you'll be back in your seats in no time if you can make it. You know, I I tell you that would have been a very short lineup. Um, You know that, and and practically, practically, the issue was related, was it not? To the issue of the ease in which the gospel can be proclaimed in a Gentile world. There's no doubt about that. However, what I'm wanting to say, and this is significant, Paul thinks in this passage something else outside of, and that's a significant issue as well, by the way, outside of the ease of gospel proclamation was at stake. There was a theology that the Judaizers held that was so toxic, so utterly evil, that if this were preached widely, if it were not confronted thoroughly, the door would be closed to a true knowledge of God. The gospel would become inaccessible. So there, he utterly opposes it. There will be no peace here. They will be denounced in every quarter that they go, and every effort will be made to identify the theology of the Judaizers and to put it to death. That's what's going on. I know this is a very un-Canadian thing to talk about, but we must. So, I want to share with you five markers of bad theology. Marker number one, noting where our confidence lies. We must note where our confidence lies. So, with the Bible in hand, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to do verse one for you. I'm going to start at verse two. Don will forgive me, maybe. Um, Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now watch verse 3. For we are, then Paul mentions, we are, first of all, he says, we are the real circumcision. Now please note that he is taking the high ground against the Judaizers. They're the ones preaching circumcision. They would have probably gotten out uh, Genesis chapter 17, and they would have talked about an everlasting covenant that gets made between God and man for all times, and it would be a mark on the, you know, the, the male organ. And so this mark, is, since it's everlasting, excuse me, everlasting, goes on for everlasting. But Paul argues with them and says, I will not surrender that theological point to you. 
That is, if you argue that the Gentiles should be circumcised, you have, if I read Paul rightly here, said, number one, you have misread the Old Testament. The other words, physical circumcision of the Gentiles, if you read the Old Testament rightly, should never have been considered as obligatory. Now, whether or not Paul would have argued, which I think he would have, from a circumcision of the heart, there are passages in Deuteronomy that speak that way, uh, Jeremiah speaks that way, and I would have thought that he would have moved in that direction, and it would be an interesting thing for us to do a study now, to stop and to say, how is circumcision actually used in the Old Testament? But I do see that Paul views in his theology a kind of continuity from the Old Testament. I mean, I, I know there's a discontinuity there as well, but there is a continuity. And Paul says, I want to argue that the real circumcision is the gospel that I'm preaching. I won't give a slightest bit to the Judaizers. Um, then the second thing that he adds, now please notice how this runs, verse 3. We are the real circumcision and then he says, who are the real circumcision? Well, those who worship by the Spirit of God. Of course, shades here of Christ's own encounter with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Remember the debate between the Jews and the Samaritans in terms of which mountain one was to worship. Where is the location of worship? And what is the proper ritual of worship that one is to follow? The debate between the Jews and Samaritans was real, and Jesus, in the end, cut through that and said, on neither mountain, but the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And, and I think we can just boil that down to say that there is a worship of the Father that arises out of a transformed heart. Maybe Paul is already thinking about circumcision of the heart, in which regeneration by the Holy Spirit begins in the human heart, and I'm going to argue in the end that regeneration always precedes conversion, but regeneration has already begun, and it is out of a regenerate heart that the soul begins to worship the living God. And so Paul says it was always the circumcision of the heart, which is this true worship by the Spirit of God. And then he adds, and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, the word glory here can best, I think, be translated as boast. That is, we boast in Christ Jesus. That is, we have a confidence in Christ, and Paul is speaking about our salvation. I boast in Christ alone. It sounds very much like one of the solas of the Reformation, sola Christos. In other words, Christ alone as the only means unto salvation. I'm going to come back to that a number of times because I think that theme plays its way through this text. And then the, the last phrase I think that he puts in verse 3 kind of sums up everything that he's saying. He says, and put no confidence in the flesh. So Paul wants to, I think, say that when no confidence is put in the flesh, that we value no human means when it comes to our salvation. Eventually, that will be his argument with the Judaizers. They think that human means affect salvation. Paul will have Christ alone being Savior and nothing to be added to that. Now, again, I'm just, I'm just basically building the foundation for what we're going to say, so please hang in there with me for just a moment. Um, we want to say no confidence in anything else that I do. 
And when it comes to the Judaizers, insisting that circumcision was necessary was for Paul robbing glory to Jesus that would shut the door to a salvation that is done by Christ and by Christ alone. Now, I want to stop here because I want to share how important this matter is. Um, one of the things that concern, should concern all of us is there has arisen a kind of evangelicalism that puts confidence in human decision for Christ. And I do want to stop here because we want to ask ourselves, what order of truth is that? In other words, we have put a great deal of emphasis, have you made a personal decision? You must choose. Now, I'm not arguing that we don't have to choose, but I think there has been a subtle shift from asking an individual, have you made a decision, or asking an individual, have you trusted Christ? Because the issue ought to be Christ, who is trustworthy to take our salvation, not about the freedom of the will to make decisions of that nature. I know it's a matter of emphasis, but I do think it's such an important matter, I would draw a line here in the sand and put this as a first order of truth. Now, I need to say something in relationship to the Arminian-Calvinist debate here, and I know that Jacob Arminius argued for something that he called prevenient grace. Some of you know what prevenient grace is. It's this weird thing that you won't find in the Bible. But it... <laughs> But I, you won't. You can read it all day long and won't find it. But Jacob Arminius wanted to make sure that he did not wander into a Pelagian camp. I'll explain that in a little while. And so in order to build a doctrine that did not leave openness, that human ability was able to choose Christ, Arminius recognized that this was a fallacy. He recognized not only was a fallacy, but it was a heresy. Now, I'm going to argue for Arminius here a moment, not because I agree with him, but hear what Arminius was concerned about. He recognized that when he builds a kind of theology that he is, that the great sticking point for him is if he begins to say that human beings can choose for Christ, he is building something that has been condemned by every branch of the Christian faith, which is called Pelagianism. Some of you know your church history. Remember that Pelagius and Augustine had this debate. And the debate between them worked like this. Augustine argued for that we were entirely, completely depraved. Not that we are as depraved as we can possibly be, but that there is no part of humanity that has not been twisted and touched by the fall. That is, my mind, my volition, my emotions, whatever makes me human has been twisted by the fall. Nothing is left untouched, so all has been subverted and made evil. Now, the reality is we are not as evil as we could be, but that's because of what we call common grace, that God has poured grace upon all. But even so, every part of our humanity has been touched by sin. Now, Pelagius argued that human beings were born in innocence, that is, they were not born with a sin nature. And because of that, every branch of the Christian faith has not only denied that Pelagius was right, but they've also said this is fundamentally a denial of the gospel. 
Now, I don't know too many full-blown Pelagians today, but there is something at loose in the country which is called semi-Pelagianism. And semi-Pelagianism is also a toxic theology. It wants to hold out that the human will can still make a choice independent of its sin nature. It can still choose for Christ. What's wrong with preaching that? The answer is that if, for instance, you argue that the human will can choose for Christ and that we in this room have all made a choice for Christ, then we are arguing that you and I have made a superior choice. That is, we have done something morally superior to that which the non-Christian world has done, and therefore some of the glory of our salvation goes to us. And we will not allow any story of our salvation to be told unless it tells the story of Christ alone. He is the only Savior. What He does cannot be added to. And this, my brothers and sisters, is a battle that's worth fighting and dying for. We will not allow even human choice to be added to our salvation. It will be the work of Christ and Christ alone. Now, I realize there's the Father's election, there's the, the Son's redemption, and there is the Spirit's regeneration in our lives, but we can say this is a work that is entrusted to God alone. The fact that we find ourselves in salvation should be overwhelming to us. I remember when my son graduated from high school, and um, um, he, he, uh, he, he spent a year um, in, uh, in Europe in a, in, a, in a Bible college in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And I was so thankful for a prof that he had received. And I remember we, of course, just out of high school, he's beginning to think as an adult. Mom and I are praying for him and saying, we care deeply about the theological decisions that he will make. And I remember him writing an email back and saying, Mom and Dad, up till now, even though I know you've taught me differently, I would have always said, why am I a Christian? I would say, because how could I be anything else? I got two sisters who are believers, my mom and dad are believers, my grandparents are believers, my cousins are all believers. I mean, everyone preached the gospel into my life. What was I going to be but a believer? But he said, now I've come to realize none of that's true. That what is in fact true is that before the councils of eternity, out of all the names of the human race, God had elected my name and chosen me to be his own. And he said, Mom and Dad, I don't know that I'm going to live long enough to be so profoundly grateful for my salvation. This is what's at stake. This is why we must fight with full vigor the doctrine of personal choice. It will close the door to a salvation by Christ alone. And this is a battle that I think is worth waging. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of battles I would argue are not worth waging. This one is. We must wage this war, we will ask ourselves, are indeed, Paul, problem with the circumcisers, they would add to the work of Christ some human means. That's precisely what we fight in every single generation, and we are fighting for it today. So when Paul uses the language that he does and makes a point in which he makes a distinction between what I would call God-honoring, Christ-exalting theology as opposed to toxic, ruinous theology, this is a dividing line. The dividing line is primarily on 
noting where our confidence in our salvation actually lies. I think I'm done with that. Let's move to the next one. I was told I could go as long as I want. How far am I? I'm up to chapter verse 3. I, yes, well, we will move a little faster, but verse 4, let's go. Now Paul has a second thing, and before I read verses 4 to 8 again, the, the second notation, the, the, the second marker, if you will, between toxic theology and God-honoring, Christ-exalting theology is noting how we treat now our own accomplishments. That's the next step. So we go to verse 4, and uh, let's note what we're reading. So Paul says, though I myself have confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Now, I've always found this fascinating. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I mean, so much for the person that says, I can't keep all the law. Paul says, I in fact did. Um, wow. But anyway, whatever, and he did, if one counts the law to be a legalistic formula, then it is. But if you count the law to be something else, then he did not, but he is now basically recounting how indeed he viewed the law. And then he writes in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Here we come back to the persecution theme, and I count them as rubbish. And I'm going to leave that last little line till right at the end of this point. But let me uh, repeat this. Toxic theology invites one to revel in one's own accomplishments, God-glorifying, life-giving theology invites one to suffer the loss of everything, and then having done so, to conclude it was nothing. That's what's added to this text. So I won't go through all the details in, in what Paul did here, but it's the conclusion that interests me here. That we are to say, having suffered the loss of everything, it was manure. It was crap. It was nothing. Um, I have just finished reading an interesting little biography of Eric Liddell. And, and you'll remember Eric Liddell. Um, fascinating book. And those of you who are old enough will remember Chariots of Fire. And if you haven't seen it, it's a really great movie to watch. And it's the story of a guy who you know, was the fastest man in Scotland. Indeed, the record that he set lasted for 35 years. It was a remarkably fast runner. He was the fastest runner in the world at his time. And at the height of his career, when he could hardly move around the UK and Scotland and especially because he was Scotland's son, the flying Scotsman, um, at the height of his career, he abandons everything, his popularity, his speaking engagements where he had the opportunity to speak for Christ and leaves it and goes to China as a missionary. I mean, it, it, to put it in our terms, it would to put Wayne Gretzky at the height of his hockey career when the Oilers were winning Stanley Cup after Stanley Cup, when everyone was just adoring him wherever he went to say, um, I'm leaving and I'm going to the mission field to serve Christ in a place that's extremely dangerous where in the end he died. I, I find it so fascinating because the mentality that we have developed, I think, in the evangelical world, we'd say, now wait a minute, look, you've got all of these accomplishments, 
could you not trade on those accomplishments to use them to share the gospel of Jesus in the nation that you are? And yes, he could have. But by reading his biography, I came to realize he never did revel in these at all. They were as nothing to him. Um, it was only his wife that wanted his trophies traded out. He simply wanted them to put into a bag somewhere. He had no interest in them whatsoever. His interest was in the gospel of Jesus. That's fascinating to me. Now, it's an interesting way of thinking because I think Paul does something like that. His lists of accomplishment are no less impressive here the first three items I know he's born into, but then on the other hand, there are, there's this impressive record, and with the impressive record, of course, has come the adulation of those in his community. And it is true, in fact, that there is a deep, satisfying sense that when, when one becomes the favorite son in one's own community, when one can do no wrong, when all men speak well of you. And what we understand here, Paul really says, I think two things have occurred. First of all, faith in Christ has cost him everything. And here we might stress the cost of discipleship, but really the loss of these things are not valuable at all. In contrast, the Judaizers still highly value the things that Paul now regards as manure, and therefore Paul says these men must be opposed. Now, I love the parable in Matthew 13 of the one who finds the treasure hidden in a field. I mean, that's the beauty of that parable. One would never look at the person in that parable who discovers this field with a, a treasure that's worth more than you can ever calculate, and nobody knows about this, so he goes out and he sells everything he has because it takes all his current assets to buy the field. And you'd never say, what a sacrifice you made. He sacrificed. If I gave up all this thing to get something that's worth many times more, that's called a sacrifice. So you see, the reality is, if our faith costs us all, we are not to regard it as a sacrifice. I, the, uh, one of my favorite stories of Hudson Taylor is after he had basically sacrificed his life on the mission field, someone had asked him about the sacrifice that he had made, and he simply said that he only did this for his own good. <laughs> and I will come back to that again and again, because I do think that there is something about counting the loss of everything as dung. And until we can do that, we will never view the accomplishments that we attribute to ourselves, and I think that might be the issue, the accomplishments that we attribute to ourselves, we will never view them as dung until Christ has become the treasure hidden in the field. Until He becomes our all in all, we will always have this grasping sense of, I can't lose this. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians 1, verse 10. Here he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now hear that. If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's a contrast. Now, I, I do know that it's a common thing in, in, in the life of every pastor to want to please the people that we serve. And there is a sense in which we must please the people that we serve in the sense that we are called upon to feed them. We are called upon to care for them when they're wounded and hurt and to bandage them. All of those kinds of things are a part of the pastoral record. But if pleasing and by pleasing, we live on the praise of others. 
See, this is why I love what Spurgeon was once to have said when a woman approached him after a sermon and said, Mr. Spurgeon, that was such a great sermon. He said, I know the devil already told me. (laughs) Duh, you know. So the reality is that we can minister out of our desire to please, and because of that, when it comes to confronting the issues that we must confront for the sake of the gospel. I'm not talking about just being, you know, pugilistic and bombastic. I mean, there are some people who just love a good fight at high noon. I suspect most of us in this room are not like that. I'm assuming, however, that there are first order of truths, closed-fisted truths, things that we must fight to the end, and that unless one rids oneself of the people-pleasing mentality, which we hold to, as the record of the chips that we have earned through ministry success, unless we are willing to regard all of that as dung, we cannot please Christ. Cannot. Cannot. You must regard Christ as infinitely superior. It has to be Christ alone. That's the idea behind it. So, let's review again. The difference between toxic theology and God honoring, life-giving theology, first of all, is noting where our confidence lies, and then noting how we treat our accomplishments. I realized there was something I wanted to say, so let me say it yet at the end of verse 8, because he says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see that? And that's really what I've already been saying, but there it is, stated right before us. I count them as rubbish in order that, with this goal that. I cannot gain Christ while I count the things that are rubbish as things of value. Again, we come back to that central proposition. It must be Christ alone. Must be. All right. Now let's go to our third point. And the third point is um, noting what we call righteousness. That's in verse 9. And uh, even if I kind of stall out at verse 9 and don't get much further, verse 9 is so valuable. This is the verse I would spend an entire uh, sermon on because he says that I may gain Christ, verse 8, and be found in Him, union with Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is historic evangelical theology. From this verse, we build our doctrine of justification by faith and by faith alone. I mean, Romans 1, 16 and 17. You'll remember what an important place those verses found in the history of the Reformation, what we call the tower experience. Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk in a tower in Wittenberg, Germany, invited uh, to teach the book of Romans, uh, begins to puzzle his way through Romans. Uh, the, the Catholic Church has taught him, the Roman Church has taught him that whenever one reads the words righteousness of God, it will always refer to God's punitive justice. And yet, as, as uh, Paul reads Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because in it, that is in the gospel, gospel, good news, in the gospel, there is a declaration of the righteousness of God. See, Luther's scratching his head. He's doing good hermeneutics, and he's saying, well, here Paul says that the righteousness of God is good news, and yet he had almost made himself sick wondering about how he, with all his sins, could get on with a righteous God. 
comes to this text and says, how is it possible that the righteousness of God is good news? So we know that when we come to Romans 3.25, and really Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 really can be properly called the heart of the gospel. Um, you know, I preach through Romans, I call Romans 1 to 4 the heart of the gospel, Romans 5 to 8, I call that the power of the gospel, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the mystery of the propagation of the gospel, and Romans 12 to 16 is the lifestyle of the gospel. I mean, it, it can, you can write that down and you can say, I heard Neufeld say that, second time you preach that, say, I've always said that, and that's good, right? Um, you, you can steal anything you want to, that's fine. But the point of the heart of the gospel is this, Romans 3, 25, that God put Jesus forward. The Father put the Son forward as a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. He set the Son forward as a propitiation to be received by faith, he says. And then he adds later on, this was to display God's righteousness. Now, really, as evangelicals, we would have thought, oh, God put Jesus, the Father, put the Son forward as a wrath-bearing sacrifice to display His mercy. But He doesn't say that, does He? He says to display His righteousness. That in pouring out His wrath on the Son, God the Father displays precisely how He feels about sin. He would not spare His only begotten Son, that the Son's sacrifice on the cross displays the righteous character of God in a way that the law could never do. It is the centerpiece of human history what displays exactly the kind of a God we have. What's so fascinating for all of us is in the place where God displays His righteousness, that very place is also the place where we find mercy. Mercy and righteousness intersect, and that, of course, is the heart of the gospel. And to tell it any other way is not the gospel. So coming back to verse 9, Paul says, I want to be found in Christ, not in my own righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law through keeping the commands, but that which comes through faith in Christ. In other words, the righteousness comes by simply trusting Christ to impute His righteousness to our account. I mean, the word impute is a wonderful word. You have to probably define that when you're preaching to your own audience, but make sure that you un people understand that Christ's righteous record is credited to our account and that our sinful record is credited to Him on the cross. That's the wonderful doctrine of imputation. I mean, you know, that we say it in a number of different ways. Then He says, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so this is why earned righteousness effectively closes the door to the gospel. We should be unspeakably angry if anyone should preach a gospel built upon moralism or earned righteousness. Christ alone has earned our righteousness, and this displays the glory of God. Now, lest we think that this equals an easy believism, of course it never does. We know that. Paul writes Romans chapter 1, verse 5. He speaks about having preached to everyone the obedience of faith. 
And I love to use this example. You know, there is an obedience of works. In other words, our obedience is a meritorious system in which I believe that through doing these things, I earn merit before God and earn a righteousness that is a damnable doctrine and must be confronted. But neither are we antinomianists, and that is we are not lawless. When Paul speaks of the obedience of faith, the best example that we can give of that is that we obey Christ in the way in which a patient obeys his physician or her physician. So when your physician says, this is the regimen that you will do and you will live, if you obey your physician's regimen and live, you glorify the physician and not yourself. That is, I do know that Christ is at work to cure my hellishness. And he does give me commands. He tells me to pick up my cross and follow him. He calls me to count everything as dung for the surpassing value of knowing him. He tells me to forgive my enemies. He tells me to continue to walk in sexual purity. He, there are many commands that he gives me, but the commands do not earn my righteousness, but they are the, rather the means by which the great physician is utilizing his skill as a healer to heal the hellishness in my soul. I trust in him alone. In other words, the commands that I keep are done in faith, not out of a works righteousness system. So we are never free from Christ's commands. This is not an easy believism, that our trust in Christ trusts him down to his commands, trusts in his cross, trusts in his righteous life to be imputed to us, but we also trust in the ongoing sanctifying work of his grace in our lives all throughout. So we never teach an easy believism, but we teach rather an abandoning all this finding of the pearl of great price. But in the end of the day, we would glory in only Christ, for He alone has done the work which is being done in our lives. We must be so careful that we never call our own deeds righteous. That is why I believe Hudson Taylor did say that I did this for my own good. That's what I say about my own pastoral ministry. Why are you in pastoral ministry? I'm doing it for my own good. <laughs> why? They pay me to study the Bible. It's an incredible thing. God knew. Christ knew. For the counsels of eternity, God said, I'm going to make this guy named John Newfeld who's going to be so steeped in sin unless I pay someone to study the Bible all the time. Who knows what will happen to him? <laughs> to God be the glory. Hallelujah. This is a profound grace. And that includes all of the other ministry experience. The easy ones and the hard ones are all due to the righteousness of Christ who affects his righteousness in me. That's the point, I think, behind verse 9. So therefore, in conclusion, again, we must savagely attack all hope in our external goodness. We must not give people any sense at all that their faithfulness to God is attributed to their own efforts. It is all come through the grace of Christ. Nothing but nothing that is accomplished through your hands or mine are due to our own efforts, but are due to the grace of God, Christ alone. All right. And then we come to verse 10. 
where Paul says that, or in order that, unto this end, with this goal in mind, that I might know Him. I mean, where else is this going? See, so we've, we've said, uh, here are the points of toxic theology. And uh, we said point number one is we need to be careful where our confidence lies. Point number two, we need to note how we treat our accomplishments. Point number three, we need to note what we call righteousness. Here's point number four, we need to note what we strive towards. So when we come to verse 10, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and may share in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. You know, I want not going to do a lot of other stuff, but I, you know, and I need to stop here because I feel that there are a couple of things that need to be said. Toxic theology invites us into striving based on the law. God honoring life giving theology invites us into a striving to know Christ as the only thing of value. I mean, there's more here than we can cover, but I think we need to hold to this. What is our goal in ministry? That all men and women may know Christ. We have a policy at Willingdon Church that if we support a Christian ministry that is feeding the poor, that we always ask the question, is the gospel being preached? Are individuals invited to faith in Christ? Are churches being built? And if not, we simply refuse to support it. Straight up. Straight out. No apologies, none. Why? Because I know that there is nothing greater than to know Christ. Can you imagine the cruelty of feeding a human belly and leaving them to the wrath of God at the end of time? Will not be involved in that. Um, we might also say the same thing about you know, political climate, halting abortion, putting uh, you know, a, a debate over homosexuality, whatever else we talk about, if somehow we don't have no Christ at the center of that, it is all in vain. And then taking that from what we minister to, can we come now to what Paul does where he speaks of his own life? The man that has now been walking with Christ for many years says, this is still my central goal. It is that I might know Christ. And I, I know that the knowing here is theological knowing, I get that, but there is also an experiential knowing that cannot be taken from this text. There is that I might walk with him, that I might know him in all of the details of my life, that I might infuse in everything that I'm a part of, that I see the hand and know Christ who is there in all of that. That's ultimately where this text is. It is always Christocentric. Everything leads us back to Christ. And I also know that when it says this, that I may know him, watch this, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. I love the fact that Paul will combine here the, the resurrection power, this is the life transformative power of Christ, and at the same time, he adds the suffering component. Knowing Christ happens in both of those arrangements. So I'll very quickly, and I know my time is drawing to an end, but let me say, consider four points. Confidence, uh, where our confidence lies. Secondly, how we treat our accomplishments. Point three, what we call righteousness. Point four, noting what we strive for. And let me quickly take you to point five, noting where our treasure lies. Um, verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. 
Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us, so forth. Uh, please do notice when he says, for many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. When he says their God is their belly, I don't think he is speaking here about people that overeat. Praise God. Um, I think what he's talking about here, again, are the Judaizers with their interest in Jewish dietary restrictions. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But he says, our mind is set, or our citizenship is in heaven. So the goal always goes in one direction. We are all Daniels who may be serving the nation that we are in, but our Morning, we open up the window wherever we are and we look towards Jerusalem because our home has never stopped being there. I'll end this way. For years in my, in my study, I had two pictures and I worked between both of them, one on this wall and one on that one with my desk in the middle, and I loved it that way because the picture on this wall was a picture of a man with a Bible in his hand like this and a pulpit in front of him like this and he was holding forth the word of God, and behind him was a great company that had gone before, including the prophets and the apostles of the past and the great preachers who stood in this kind of uh, an image line behind him. And I would stare at that picture sometimes and always remember that's the task that God has given me, hold forth the word in line with those who have gone before. Then the picture on the other side was the picture of a young man who was fallen on his knees and seated or standing in front of the throne was Christ himself. And he had fallen before him and he had come to this consummation. It was such a beautiful picture of everything that he had ever wanted. And I thought to myself, there's the issue. Newfelt, do what this picture says, but Newfelt, never forget this picture because whatever else you do, get there. Get there. And Paul says that I might somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. That somehow means whatever pathway that Christ calls me to walk through, that I may have been found faithful to him in all things so that I will simply be there. That ultimately is my goal. Christ alone until the day I stand before him, regardless of the cost, regardless of the joy, it will be with my affection set on Christ. Christ will be all. My citizenship is in heaven. I am moving towards that direction. Brothers and sisters, whether we ever see each other again, I say to you, just be there. May God witness between us that when we are out of each other's presence, we will have been found faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and will not abandon it and will contend for it, fight for it with all our hearts, so that we may arrive safely on heaven's shore. To him be the glory. Amen. Thank you, John. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you dwell within us. Jesus, we come before you today and we confess that there are so many things in our life that can crowd you out. May all of us here today live lives that cry out Christ alone. May you be central to how we live, to what we do, to our interactions with 
believers as we call them, to know you in a more deep and intimate way to non-believers as you allow us to present to them the gospel. May our lives cry out to Christ alone. And may we always remember our citizenship is not here. Oh God, may you remind us that we have a home and we are not there yet. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.